Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. We got so much to cover. We're going to dive right into God's word. Could you just take out your Bibles and the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door and we can begin. I have all kinds of useless stories and information along with God's word. Isn't that nice? So I got lots of stuff to talk about. Uh, but I'll begin with this. We are in part four in our series through the book of Ezra, kind of going line by line. And, and I entitled today's message, The Enemy at the Gates. And this is in our Purpose Reclamation Project series. And I want to begin by drawing your attention to the fill in the blank with a few thoughts. I'm going to use the word enemy quite a bit in today's message. going to constantly refer to the Christian's enemies. And, and I need to be very clear. It's not like this is new to you. I've shared it a bunch of times, but, but I always want to be very clear on who our enemies are and who they are not. All right. So in the Bible, it says that we have three enemies. Y'all know what they are world, the flesh and the devil, the world, the flesh and the devil. Our enemies are not our neighbors. Y'all following me? Our enemies are not people. People can be used as puppets by enemies. They are not the enemy. If we spend all of our time attacking or assaulting or destroying other people, we're completely off base on all this stuff because they're being utilized or abused or bullied or manipulated in whatever way, just like we are. Our real enemies, the Bible says, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. So let me just define those again so that we're all on the same page. The world, what I mean by the world is systems, ideas, priorities, concepts that are going on in our societies today that are not in alignment with God. Y'all following me? I mean, you can put whatever ones jump to mind, materialism, uh, greed, right? We can put in uh, workaholism. We can put in uh, the spirit of look out for number one, who cares who you hurt. Anything that you see in society that you go, uh, I don't think that's biblical. That's the world. So that is warring with us because it's trying to bend us into that mold as opposed to the mold that Christ is trying to define in us. Second thing, it's the world, the flesh. The flesh is the part of us that still wants to do its own thing. It's the part of us that is anti whatever God's plans are. It's the rebellious part of us. It's the part that the Holy Spirit hasn't fully shaped yet. You all know what I mean? So anytime that you talk about temptation, like, oh man, I, you know, I probably shouldn't be doing that or I shouldn't be thinking that and I really want to, that's the flesh, okay? Enemy, number two. Number three, the devil. I'll be very clear on this. The devil is a personal evil, a personal evil. As a matter of fact, I always want to be very clear that Satan is an evil genius. You are never going to outsmart the devil. He's way smarter than all of us and collectively, right? So you're never going to outwit him. You're never going to outthink him. You're never going to be a step ahead of him. That's not going to happen. So how then ought we to live if we have a personal enemy that's smarter and faster and everything than us? We live by obedience to Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's smarter and faster and better than the enemy. 
And therefore, it is not on us to outthink the enemy. It's on us to obey the one that outthinks the enemy. Y'all tracking with me? So that's how we live. Well, make no mistake. He does not like us. Satan does not like us. We smell like Jesus. And that's disgusting to him. And therefore, he wants us dead. But do y'all realize that Satan is limited in his power? that he still has to answer to King Jesus. Y'all tracking with me? Therefore, he's not allowed to do whatever he wants because whatever he wants would be to kill us all. He can't do that. So what does he do instead? What do these enemies want? They want to distract us because a distracted Christian is just as good as a dead one. A distracted Christian is just as good as a dead one. If he can get you focused on your own life and selfishness and running your own kingdom, he wins. He doesn't need you dead. He just needs you nullified, right? And so if we are lost in all the different things of the world and we do not advance the kingdom of God and we're not worried about keeping ourselves healthy for the Lord, if we're not praying and listening to him and reading his word, then he's already won. That's all he wants to do is nullify us because then we don't mess with his kingdom. The Bible says that to the church, God gives the keys to the kingdom of God and that the gates of hell will what? Not prevail. That means that we have the power and authority in the name of Jesus Christ to advance his kingdom, which is clashing in tension with that of the enemies and the enemy's going to lose. It means that as we go out into society and we see something that does not align with Jesus Christ, then we are to dismantle it. Well, obviously the enemy doesn't want that. So what does he got to do? Get us thinking about something else, focused on something else, and so we wouldn't cause any problems for him. So he works through attacks. He works through manipulation. And this is what we want to talk about today. The bottom line is the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you, and that is this. Our enemies do not want us healthy. Our enemies do not want us healthy. In other words, every conversation we're having through this series about, Hey, how do we realign with God? How do we allow him to give us fresh wind, fresh fire, fresh anointing, fresh power? How do we adjust our lives to be more in alignment with what he wants? How do we partner with him in advancing his kingdom? All those questions that we're asking means that we're going to have to be healthier and healthier and healthier in our spirit and connected to the Lord. They don't want that. The enemies don't want that. It wrecks everything. Well, of course, we want that. And so there's a tension there. The last thing I want to mention before we dive into this is that there are many of us in this room that feel like things are just hard in life. And I want to remind you of a prayer message that I did where I let you know and I taught very clearly that just because it's difficult doesn't mean it's wrong. Sometimes good things are just difficult. And I, and I would love to reset all of us because sometimes we do this Christianity thing and we get discouraged and we're like, man, I must not be doing something right. Why am I still wrestling with the same problem? And why am I still having the same challenges? I'm still having tough time here and here and here. And I, I must not be doing it right. And we look out at everybody else and they seem to have their stuff handled. And so what's wrong with us? Well, I want to remind you of something. If you did a shoot around 
on basketball with Michael Jordan, you're going to feel like a loser. Just pointing that out, right? You're like, man, he makes everything, right? And what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? How come I keep, ooh, I keep missing all that stuff? You don't, you don't match yourself up and say, oh, Michael Jordan's the normal standard. You go and do a shoot around with me. And you feel so much better about yourself. And you're like, oh, man, Lance is way worse than I am. And then all of a sudden you start feeling good about yourself, right? It's that you read level set on what's normal. I just need you to know that some things are difficult and that's just normal. And you go, man, I'm trying to make changes in my life. I'm trying to let go of addictions. I'm trying to restore relationship. I'm trying to forgive. I'm trying to do all these things. And it's just so hard. It's supposed to be. And that's okay. We can do this because with God, all things are possible. Amen. Amen. All right. Would you turn with me to Ezra chapter four, verse one, Ezra chapter four, verse one, where are we at in the story? Well, Israel has been gone in captivity. They got wiped out of their land for 70 years. They were outside of Israel and now they've got a chance to come back in. A Persian king was used by God to say, go ahead, guys, you can go back, rebuild your place. So about 42, 43,000 of them all went back home under the leadership of two significant people, the governor Zerubbabel, the high priest Yeshua. They're in there. They've already set up their altar to God. They're offering sacrifices. They're getting their head in the game. They've now laid the foundation for the new temple but really the walls are still messed up and everything still has a lot of work to do, but they're starting to pick up speed. And that's when the enemy comes in. Let's go ahead and take a look at where we're at. Ezra chapter four, verse one, this is where we begin. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin, that's a fancy way of talking about Israel. Now, when the enemies of Israel heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to Yahweh, the God of Israel, they approached the Israeli governor Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses or the elders. And they said to them, Hey, let us build with you for we worship your God, just like you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Azarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here 200 years ago. Okay. Let's pause right there. A little bit of history. Who are these guys? Why do they want to help build? Where did they come from? Let's make it easy. They're the ones that were living in the land when the Jews came back. They are known as Samaritans. Everybody ever hear that phrase before? The Samaritans. Where did they come from? Well, it's pretty simple. Remember how I told you that in 722 BC, the north, the 10 tribes of Israel in the north got taken out. When they got taken out by the Assyrians, the Assyrians backfilled it with people that weren't Jews. There was a few Jews remaining in there, and so they kind of intermarried, but mostly it was non-Jewish people. When the South got wiped out by the Babylonians in 586 BC, then all of a sudden they got backfilled and more people moved in and they married with a little bit of the Jews that were in the land. And so you had these quasi non-Jewish people living in the area called Samaria. Well, what do you call those? Samaritans, right? Pretty simple. Well, 
They don't want the Jews back home, right? We talked about this last week. They don't want the Jews back home. So they want to cause a problem any way they can. So they come up and they said, hey, we totally are into your God too, man. I mean, we're all about Yahweh, you know? I mean, we've been worshiping him for the last 200 years. So how about we help you out on this? Does that seem a little weird? They want to help you. Hmm. Why do they want to help? Uh, because they want to infiltrate and cause a problem and they want to distort. One of the easiest ways to disrupt is to be on the inside. They have no interest in helping at all. Not only are they not supposed to be intermixing with them because Israel has a very specific calling from God to be a purified nation, but these guys don't want to help. They want to cause all sorts of problems. They want to infiltrate and cause a challenge What happens when Satan wants to help you build the kingdom of God? Right? Let's make it personal, yeah? Have you ever had Satan try to help you build the kingdom of God? And you're like, well, I don't even know what that would look like. Well, okay, well, let's talk about this. Here's how it would look practically. Have you ever had the idea that you and God could have a win-win situation? God, here's what we could do. I could totally do this ministry right now. I could do this ministry and you're going to get a whole bunch of stuff that you want. But you know what? I can also make bank. So here's the deal. It's kind of a win-win. Like you get something, a little bit for you, a little bit for me, a little bit for you, a little bit more for me. Right? You know what I mean? If you had that idea of the win-win, you're trying to build his kingdom and your kingdom simultaneously. That's from the enemy. Why is it about you at all? Can't we focus on him? Is his kingdom the only one that matters? Yes. Let me give you another example. The spirit of offense. You are doing some work in the church. You're doing some work with other Christian leaders. So the enemy says, I would love to buddy up with you and let me help you build this ministry. And then you start getting really passionate about it. And then somebody else starts offending you. You start getting agitated by other Christians and then bitterness starts creeping in. And so the other person is that shoulder to cry on, right? You got the enemy there going, man, you know what they are? They're messing with you. I can't believe they're even doing that. This is terrible. I thought this was supposed to be the church. Why would you even do that? More bitterness rises up. Eventually you two fight so much that you can no longer do ministry together. And everyone in your ministry is discouraged and no longer wants to be a church. Ah, Think that was the enemy? Of course it was. Another analogy. Compromise for speed. If you are in business and God wants to do your business with you, and that is your ministry, but you come up with the idea that if I only cut a couple corners, we can make a lot more a lot faster, that's the enemy. Because he's giving you new ideas. Let me just help you build your business. Oh, okay. Last example, self-protection. When I mentioned that some of our enemies are our own flesh, how many times have you done things for self-protection that are really just selfishness? Well, I'm just watching, I'm just making sure, just watching out for me, just, you know. Well, how much of that is just simply selfishness? You don't want other people to have, you want to have. I'm not so sure it was self-protection in a healthy way. I think it may just be selfishness in an unhealthy way. All right, so y'all following with me? These are ways that the enemy kind of tries to buddy up with you and get things handled. Hmm. All right, here we go. It says, but 
Zerubbabel, Yeshua the high priest, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel, the elders and leaders, said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. What does he mean? Uh, we don't need your help. We're allowed to be here. You need to back off. And you go, wow, that's really rude. No, no, no. They know what's up. So they're shutting the bad guys down and saying, I will walk this alone. I don't need your alleged help. You're just going to make things worse. So you need to step away and let me do my job. Hmm. A couple things about that. I want God told the Jews to walk with him specifically and the Jews will never be okay with a leader over them other than God. They were supposed to do it with God and God alone. Do you realize that there's areas in your life that that's supposed to be the same way? Sometimes we can buddy up with other people and sometimes it's got to be you. Just you and God. Let me give you an example. And this is in no way uh, to be an insult about anything. Um, it's merely to give you a more balanced perspective. So let me just share with you a, a gross analogy. You ever thought about this idea on National Geographic about how a mama bird feeds her baby birds? Anybody know that stuff? You ever, ever watch that thing? What's it called? Regurgitation, right? Let me tell you how regurgitation works. That's why you came to church, yes? So here's, here's how it works. That uh, mama bird knows that baby birds don't have the full digestive process to be able to handle the full entire worm. So even if she brought them a worm, dropped it in the nest, they're like, what am I supposed to do with that? And why is it moving? You know, that kind of thing. So what mama bird does is she flies out, she grabs a, a worm, and then she's like, and she eats the whole thing, and then she goes to the babies and goes, rock, and just right into their mouth. Whoa! God does cool stuff. So that is totally appropriate for baby birds, right? But what if daddy bird is like, hey, babe, can you go get me a worm? <laughs> what are you doing watching TV? <laughs> hey, while you're out, while you're out, just pick one up for me. You're like, no, get your own worm. Right? I don't, that's not appropriate for you. I don't need to be chewing up your food. You're like, do you have a point? Yes. <laughs> I do have a point. Here's my point. Um, I love what we're doing here. I believe this is healthy and a right. I believe it is good. I believe the idea of preaching and teaching is a gift from God. I believe it is entirely necessary. I believe the idea that you would come and be able to hear the word of God explained and given background and context, I think all that is good. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it for a career. I, I believe that all the times you turn on the radio and you hear great speakers, every time you pick up a book and you, you hear people like Beth Moore, one of the, the, the greatest, you know, uh, studiers of the Bible. And she's bringing this truth forward. And you're like, dang, I didn't even see that. And, and when you grab like Tim Keller stuff and you're like, whoa, mind blow. And then you go to NT Wright, Yeah. And, and these high level thinkers, and you're like, whoa, there's a whole nother element of Christianity. I think all 
that is this beautiful part of your diet. But be very clear, it's regurgitation. Y'all tracking with me? For babies, it's entirely appropriate that that's the only way you engage with God. As a matter of fact, other people can pray for you, right? So you go up and uh, all the time, you don't do a whole lot of prayer on your own, but other people pray for you because you're not quite sure what you're doing yet. And you're kind of learning by role modeling. All that is entirely appropriate. But if it never changes and you never go direct, I don't think that's healthy. For example, there's a certain degree to where you go, man, Pastor Lance, I love how you broke that down and everything. You know what? That coincides with what I've been reading on my own. Y'all tracking with me? Why? You went direct. You allowed God to talk to you. Why? Because if you only go through someone else, there will create a distance in your relationship. I appreciate the fact that Hillsong has killer worship. I appreciate the fact that Bethel and Jesus culture have incredible worship. We sing their stuff. It's awesome. I love the fact that if you want to go old school, let's go integrity or Maranatha or you keep going back, right? I love the idea that these are incredible worship teams. But when are you going to worship yourself? As opposed to letting them worship and you listening to them worship their God. I think there needs to be a degree to where you in your heart sing out worship and praise to God and the radio's not on. Y'all tracking with me? Because what it's saying is you're getting it regurgitated worship. You're going, man, I'm just going to listen. Man, it fills my spirit. No, other people are worshiping. You're picking up off of it. How about you worship? How about you engage? So what I'm saying is I think that it's healthy. All of that is good for a healthy part of your diet, but you also need some serious solid food of going direct to Jesus. Because you can digest it. Sometimes it's easier to have it blended, but sometimes you got to eat the raw food. Are you all tracking? All right. Um, let's move on here. We'll go to verse verse four. Uh, it says, then the people of the land, realizing the whole buddying system, let me be spies and get involved and all that stuff. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build. They bullied them. And they bribed the Persian counselors against them, frustrating their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Discouragement. Man, doesn't this seem difficult? Were they doing something wrong? Should it be this hard? Should it be this challenging? I mean, don't you kind of feel like you go out there and you're putting yourself at risk? There's 42,000 of you or 43,000. You go out there and you're trying to do this major risk thing. And you're like, God, I'm building your altar. Nothing's wrong there. No mixed motives. I'm building the foundation of your temple. That's for your glory. Lord, I'm doing your work. Why does it feel like I'm constantly under attack and everything is hard? Does that mean I'm doing it wrong, Lord? Or does it mean that the enemy's on me? Uh, let me give you a, a, an analogy here. In every wartime scenario, you have to 
figure out where you're going to put your resources? And could it possibly be that the enemy in spiritual warfare is looking at you and seeing you do a significant work and he needs to put more attention on you to get you knocked out? Let me explain a little piece of this. So recently um, I uh, got a chance to be at an invocation for my buddy Brian and he's here and he hates attention being put on him. So I'm going to go ahead and put more attention on him. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Brian Liebenguth just retired 21 years of service in the air force, right? <laughs> Sorry, Brian. Anyway, I'm gonna look away from you now. Uh, Brian, the U2 pilot right for the air force up at Beale. So we got a chance to go through the whole tour and everything. And I learned some fascinating things about the U2 plane. Anybody know what the U2 plane is? Well, it's, it's insane, right? So the U2 plane and, and, and what Brian does, and I should have brought pictures would have been fun. Uh, Brian has to put on a moon suit, uh, like an astronaut suit where it locks in and it can be self-contained and all that stuff because he flies at 70,000 feet. That is, if you think of a normal jet's about 35,000 feet, he's twice that high. So he can see the bend in the horizon. He can see where space touches our atmosphere. And so he's up in this plane and he could be up there for up to 10 hours at a time. It's crazy. So he can fly all over the world. Here's, here's the interesting thing to me. Uh, anybody have any idea when the U-2 was built? The 1950s right? 1950s. Uh, they got their latest upgrade in the eighties. Now, let me just ask you a question. If you're 70,000 feet in the air, do you want to be in something that was last upgraded in the eighties? As a matter of fact, the plane operates in order to stay light. It operates off a lever and pulley system. Really? That's our, our incredible technology at work right there. You're literally pulling things and go, if I pull like mousetrap the game, if I pull this, that'll pull that rudder and then I can pull this and, and you're moving it around and you're in this big space suit. I mean, it's crazy stuff, right? And so I learned even more uh, fascinating information. So last night I'm sharing this information and one of the texts, one of your texts was at our meet and greet and he's like, Hey, I work on the YouTube. Did you know they're all handmade? None of them are the same. I was like, great. You're in a handmade airplane. And he's like, every time we have to change stuff out, it has to be molded just for that. No two U2s are identically the same. And so he's talking about this when they come down. I mean, there's okay. How come we're dealing with such old technology for such an important process? Bottom line dollars. The you just don't have the money coming through to be able to upgrade all that stuff. And they're not making any more. And, and so they're still operating off old technology. Well, the reason why is because the military has limited funds and they have to figure out where are we going to put the most money in the most important areas. I just want to share with you that Satan and his demons have very little interest in putting all their attention on Bob in Bakersfield watching TV. They're not have no, they have no interest in trying to take that guy down. Why? He ain't doing anything anyway. What they need to do is say, listen, we got limited resources. We need to take out that Martha lady who's about 79, who when she hits her knees in her prayer room, nations move. 
You understand what I mean? They need to take all their heat and go after her because she's doing something. She is the one advancing the kingdom of God. They don't need the flash and flare. They're looking for actual effectual change. And so they're going to put all their heat. Sometimes you are going to have just sheer difficulty because you're doing the right thing. Amen. I think that sometimes we should take pride in the fact that there was resistance. I want you to get into that martyr mindset from back in the day where they said, I consider it an honor that they're bringing heat on me. I consider an honor. If they went after my Jesus, they're going after me. Because why did all of hell put all their focus on the cross? Because they knew he's it. And I think for some of us, as opposed to being discouraged that ministry and life change and transformation is so hard we should say wow maybe god's making something here and that's why it's so hard please be encouraged Hmm. there are three common attacks of the enemy if you take notes i want you to write this stuff down three common attacks of the enemy you just saw it written right there in the word of god three common attacks of the enemy number one discouragement discouragement How do our enemies discourage us? If you've ever had this feeling of going, man, I know I need to make some changes in my life, but what's the point? You got bombed. You understand what I mean? Why? Because it's always a good idea to follow the Lord. It's always a good idea to get healthier. It's always a good idea to do Jesus's will. For you to go, man, there's no point. Forget it. I'm never going to be different. Gotcha. Discouragement. Number two, fear or bullying, whichever one you want to write down. Sometimes the enemy just goes direct, right? Just like they did to Israel. Direct attack. If you ever have this attitude, if I do this, everything's going to fall apart. Right? Let me give you an analogy. Let's say you're out there and you're, you're shopping at a store and the Lord says, and the Holy Spirit whispers to you, that person needs the gospel. Your first reaction is, oh, great. And then your flesh kicks in. Whoa, 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 whoa. What are you doing? No, you are not going to open your mouth and talk to a stranger about Jesus. I don't know if you understand this, but we're not very secure in here. Man, we have so much insecurity flying. If you dare open up your mouth and you talk to that person, they're going to judge you. And when they judge you, man, you are going to look stupid. And then, man, you're just going to fall apart and you're just going to be a mess and it's going to wreck you for the whole next week. This totally isn't worth it. You got bombed. fear, bullying. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't stop. What did Jesus say? Number three, increasing opposition from others, increasing opposition from others. Notice that it says they began to bribe the Persian officials that they even started stopping the work. If you've ever had the feeling of everyone's against me, everything's against me, you got taken out by the enemy. Because everyone is not against you and everything is not against you. If he is for us, who cares who is against us? I want to highlight out and you go, man, I must mean that I'm super immature in my faith that I keep getting knocked over by this. Hold up. Do you all know who Elijah is? Elijah is a prophet in the Old Testament. He's hardcore. 
He's legit miracle worker, right? So he prays that it doesn't rain for three years and it doesn't rain. I mean, he's navigating weather systems with God. You understand what I mean? Not only that, but then he calls down fire from heaven to strike at his word. That's insane. That's pretty anointed, pretty mature. Maybe you guys do that all the time. Never done that myself. What happens right after that incident? He's down in a cave and he says, God, you may as well just kill me. I don't want to do ministry anymore. This is stupid. I'm the only one. And he wants to die. What did God say to him? Hey, kid, get up. Get out of the cave. What are you doing? I have 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. You are not the only one. Come on. You're getting lied to, buddy. You got all kinds of stuff being whispered into your head. You got to shut that down. What did I tell you? I told you you're on my team. I told you that I got your back. I told you we are advancing the kingdom. Don't you let him lie to you. Y'all following me? It happens to everybody, even the best. This whole discouragement of everything's against me. Everyone's against me. Right? All right. Now, if you look at verse, what, six, six through 10, just take a quick glance at that. It's a whole bunch of names of different Persian kings and it goes out of order and all this stuff, right? Let me just give you the Cliff Notes version, right? Let me clean it up a little bit for you. Here's basically what you're reading. That when the Persian kingdom came in, they had 14 kings over hundreds of years And they ruled the area and the empire until a guy named Alexander the Great showed up. Y'all remember him? Okay, so Alexander the Great kind of shut down their gig. But in between there, there's 14 different kings. Some were super short and some were super big deal. Well, what Ezra does is he starts saying, listen, we get serious opposition from the enemy. I just for a moment am going to tell you about all of it. Man, the whole time we're rebuilding all the way from me, all the way through Nehemiah, we've just had problem after problem after problem. I'm just going to highlight, he said, four of the different kings. Man, they were messing with us during this guy's era, this guy's era, this guy's era. And so here is the order. In case you take notes as a history buff, just write this real quick down because this will help you keep it straight. The first guy that got the ball rolling for him that let him go home in the first place was King Cyrus. King Cyrus or Cyrus the Great. The next guy is King Darius or Darius the Great. Following him is a guy named Xerxes. That's Esther's guy. You all know the book of Esther? That's her man. All right. His name is also Ahasuerus. That's Uh, You get Aramaic. You also get a Greek name. So they just match them up together. Xerxes. Then Xerxes' son is Artaxerxes I. That's who they're writing the letter to in this story. So he just highlights out, listen, there's four guys you need to pay attention to. Everyone else, forget it. Nobody cares. It is during this Artaxerxes I where Ezra is jumping forward in the story. That's when Ezra was around and they had all these other problems. Here we go. Let's pick it up in verse 11. Here's the letter the bad guys wrote. This is a copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes I, the king. 
Your servants, remember these are the bad guys, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river Euphrates, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us in that first migration, well, they've gone to Jerusalem, the the capital city, as you know. They're rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They're finishing the walls. They're repairing the foundations. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay you any money. They will not pay tribute or custom or toll or taxes and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now, because we eat at the salt of the palace, we're your employees. Obviously we're on your side. And it's not fitting for us on your team to witness the king's dishonor. We'd hate for you to be embarrassed. Therefore, we send and inform you in order that a search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. And you'll find in the book of the records and learn that this city, Jerusalem, it is a rebellious city. It is hurtful to kings and provinces and that sedition and rebellion has been stirred up in it from old. That's actually why this city was laid waste in the first place by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, you will then have no possession in the province beyond the river Euphrates. Okay, what's that called? That's called a manipulation letter. That's called, hey, we're going to mess with you and try to get you on our side. So you shut these guys down. We don't want them here. We want you to help kick them out. You got to do something about this king, right? They're manipulating him three different ways. Let's make it personal. You're getting manipulated by the enemy three different ways. Whether it's the world, the flesh, or the devil, it's messing with you. Let me give you three examples. Three common manipulations of the enemy. Here we go. Number one, manipulation with money. Did you hear him start out with that? If you let them do this, you're going to lose all your cash, man. You're not going to get anything back. And then all of a sudden your kingdom is shaky. Dude, you don't want to let that happen. How does the enemy do that to you and I? It talks about what we're going to lose if we follow the Lord. It doesn't have to be money. It just means resources. How about friends? Yeah? Man, if you seriously start trying to align with the Lord, get your head in the game, and you stop smoking pot, what do you think that's going to do to your friend group? They all do it. That's everybody hangs out. That's part of your gig. If you do this and you make that choice, you're going to lose all your friends. Hmm. Are you getting manipulated like that? Man, you don't want to follow the Lord. Cost seriously pretty high pretty high then everyone's gonna reject you. That's a drag. You don't want that hmm. Manipulation number two manipulation with pride notice they went up and they're like man. We don't want you to be embarrassed here What do you mean embarrassed? What what's gonna happen to me? Man people are gonna start talking about you, right? And then I don't know you just don't look so good Are you getting manipulated like that? You don't want to take a stand why your reputation's gonna get sunk? Is that what's going to happen? Is the enemy twisting your head? You're afraid to be bold for the Lord. Afraid to stand up and do the right thing. Why? Because everyone's going to call you what? A goody two shoes? What are they going to call you? Naive? How are you going to lose your reputation? Hmm. Number three, manipulation with fear. Man, King, if you let this happen, 
I don't even know what's going to happen to you. Like, you're going to lose all your control over here, and it could just snowball. If you've ever had your mind go off on a what-if game, right? Well, if I do this, like, what if this happens? Well, what if that happens? If that what-if game starts spinning, you're getting played. It's called the manipulation of the enemy. So this is the big question for us, right? How are you being manipulated and attacked right now? What are we going to do about it? Are you being manipulated? Yes. Let's just call it what it is. We just need to expose the fact of how it's happening so we can stand up against it. If you are a believer, you are hunted. If you are someone advancing the kingdom or trying to get your life in alignment, you're a target, right? So of course it's after you. The question is, are you falling for it? So how did it work out? Did the manipulation letter work? Let's pick it up in verse 17. The king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander and Shimshai, the scribe and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria and the rest of the province beyond the river Euphrates. Greetings. And now the letter that you sent to us, well, it's been plainly read before me in my own language, right? And I made a command, a decree, and a search has been made to check the records. And it has been found that this city, Jerusalem, from of old, has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. Pause. Is that true? Yes. Yes. Jerusalem is a rebellious city. As a matter of fact, the whole reason they got wiped out is they had one rebellion after another after another. I told you once, the Jews are never going to be cool with anyone owning them. They're never going to be cool with being oppressed. They're always going to fight and say, I serve God alone. So as long as you're trying to shut me down, I'm going to fight you. So they were very rebellious. So that's true. Then he says this, verse 20, and mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river Euphrates to whom tribute and custom and toll were paid. So man, these guys, when they get rolling, they get pretty hardcore. They have Kings like King David and King Solomon and King Hezekiah, right? You do not want them to pick up speed because they become a power force. Yeah. Therefore, verse 21, make a decree, make a law and order a command that these men, these Jews be made to cease working on the temple in the city and that the city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. I need to look into this more right now. I'm totally uncomfortable with it. Shut it down. Look at verse 22 and take care not to be slack in this matter. Guys, hurry up. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? The literal translation of that says, and why should my nakedness be exposed? Don't embarrass me, guys. Shut it down. Then when the copy of the King Artaxerxes letter was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped for 15 years. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, a couple things you need to know as we wrap this out. Why did they finish by saying, oh, no, 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 it got stopped until this time? Why did they mention that? Why couldn't they have just said it stopped? Because any good work that you do for the kingdom of God, you need to remember how the story ends. God always wins. Y'all following me? 
oh man, I was trying to totally put my life back together and then I just got hijacked. For now, God always wins. And if he is doing a work to set you free, then you will be free indeed. Every time you do anything for the kingdom, whatever the enemy is going to do is temporary. Why? We already know the end of the story. Bad guys don't win. We always win with Jesus. So as you're going through your life and you're fighting all these attacks and discouragement and everything else, just remember whose side you're on. I want you to hear this quote from Warren Wearsby as I finish. I thought it was powerful for me in this time of my life. He was basically talking about when it comes to God, here's the quote, opportunity and opposition usually go together. The greater the opportunity, the greater the opposition. Maybe the struggles that you're having in trying to put your life back together are for a good reason. Can I have the prayer team come on up here? Here's what I want to do. We're going to pray that the prayer team is anointed to continue to pray breakthrough in your life. That this whole altar is anointed so after I say amen, then everything really launches, right? But I want to pray for everyone that feels picked on. I want to pray for everyone that feels manipulated. I want to pray protection over our family. Yeah? Over our kids. Over our hearts. Over our ministries. Over our minds. And allow God to be the fortress that He says He is. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, remove distraction out of the room in the name of Jesus. For when you are here, all things go right. So I just pray, Holy Spirit, you would have your way. You know how to do it right. You know how to do it best. And we set aside our control issues. We set aside our distractions. And we just say, Lord, have your way. Defend us, shield us, protect us. If there is any reason we need to walk through, give us the boldness of a lion and the strength to carry on. Your word says that we should not grow weary in doing good, that if we continue on with you, we will reap a harvest. Right now, Father, would you pour out your encouragement on all my friends and family? That, Lord, everyone that can hear my voice, everyone that is watching online, everyone that is within this building and this campus, even our kids in the back and the little babies being held, would you fill us with your encouragement and open up an umbrella of protection over the top? That, God, that when we are near you, that for all things that truly matter, we are untouchable. For everything else, there's warfare. Would you allow our hearts and minds to remain vigilant? And even though the enemy wins temporary battles, please do not let us give up. But allow our feet to run and not grow weary and walk and not faint. But Lord, in the spirit, by your power, not ours, we begin to soar on the wings of eagles. Father, refresh us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful weekend. The altar is open.